We are still in Nehemiah. Amen. Whoever did that, you're my favorite parishioner of all time. I think we're going to be finished before this, the end of the summer, which is very, very sad. <laughs> Yesterday was the first day of summer. Uh, but I do believe we'll be finished before the end of the summer. Um, but I'm going to give you a 30-second overview of the entire book of Nehemiah while you're opening up to chapter 12. And y'all are going to need your Bibles because we are going to be, as always, right into the Word of God. And we're going to look right at the words that God had written. Nehemiah chapter 12. Here's your 30-second overview. The walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt in 52 days, despite all of their enemies' frantic opposition. Now, some of you are looking at your clock. I don't think I'm going to make this 30 seconds, but I'm going to be close. The people of God were spiritually revived. And then they recommitted. Are you getting the R words here? That's things that pastors do. So they rebuilt the wall. They revived the people. They recommitted to serving God exclusively. And then the city of Jerusalem, we saw it last week, was repopulated. That's four R words. I hope you're uh, keeping track of this. And what we're going to see today is that the whole city rejoiced as they rededicated the walls of Jerusalem in a worship celebration. So this is a mammoth worship celebration that we're going to be looking at. And what we're going to see today is what worship looks like to a revived people. Now, if you ever wondered, what, what should worship look like? What biblically is worship? I think your, your answers are coming. They're going to be answered in this sermon. So I'm going to jump right in it. we got a lot to cover. we got a lot of things to see. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 12. We're actually looking at verses 27 through 43. I took a big chunk, but we're going to do the best we can. So here we go. You ready? Now you got to think. you got to get your mind around this. you got to start incorporating these principles into your life. I want to be a church that knows how to worship our God. Amen? How do we do that? I think you're going to learn tonight. Today you're going to learn. Biblical worship. Number one. Biblical worship is dedicating to God. If you're going to worship biblically, there contains a dedication. Now let's find where we see this in Nehemiah. Let's look together at verse 27. Let me read it. You follow along. Verse 27, Nehemiah chapter 12. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites and all their places. So they're dedicating the walls of Jerusalem. This is a mammoth worship service. Thousands and thousands of people. It's a dedication of the wall. You know, Bertoldo, Bertoldo Di Giovanni, the teacher of Michelangelo, he was trying to help his gifted, creative young pupil. Now listen, if you're a teacher, and you've got some really gifted students, then you'll know, and you'll know what I'm saying, they tend to coast in their efforts. And so Giovanni came into the workshop one day, and he finds Michelangelo toying with a piece of sculpture far beneath his abilities. Bertoldo grabbed a hammer and he stomped across a room and he smashed 
the work that Michelangelo was working on. He smashed it into tiny pieces and he said these unforgettable words. Here they are. Michelangelo, talent is cheap. Dedication is costly. Now listen, if you're going to dedicate your life to God, it will always require sacrifice. Worship is a sacrifice of praise. It requires dedication. When something is dedicated to the Lord, listen, here's what you're doing. It means that something is given over to God for his control and his use. Now I want you to think, it was time out for a second. You're going to dedicate something to God? Here's your mindset. It starts in your mind. It starts with your thinking. And we can all do this. What that is that you're dedicating, maybe it's your body, maybe it's your health, maybe it's your energy, maybe it's your money, maybe it's your gifts, maybe it's your car and your home. I was just at a home this last week, beautiful home. They said, we bought this home for a reason. We wanted to serve God in this home. You know what they do? They have Bible studies in their home. People are coming to know the hope of Jesus Christ in their front room. They're dedicating their house to the Lord. You give what is God's back. That's what it means to dedicate. It means you give God exclusive control and use of what he has let you manage, what he has let you borrow. And this is where it begins. This is where worship begins. It begins by laying it all down. Now listen, we're Americans. We don't do this very well. Now I want you to think for a moment of some of the possessions that you have. Maybe it's not very much, maybe it's a lot. Doesn't matter whether you have a little or a lot, you can be possessive. Now, I want you to think of this. Maybe it's your cars, motorcycles, trucks, tractors. Maybe it's your homes, your talents, your abilities, your hobbies. Who, who owns those? It's easy to say it. Who functionally owns the bank? Who function? God owns the banks on a thousand hills. I think I might have distorted that a little. Who owns it is God. He might have placed it into our lives for us to steward, but we hold on to it. We get possessive. We say, God, I'll let you borrow it a little bit, but it's mine. And God says, no, it's not yours, and I can take it away to show you. Dedicating is when you give to God what is already His. You give it to His for His control and His use. Listen, this is where worship begins. It begins when we lay down our lives on the altar. We kneel before God and we give God all that He rightfully owns. When you walked in this sanctuary. Listen, if you want to become a worshiping people, before you get through that door, here's what you've got to do. You've got to lay it back down. You've got to lay it back down. I've got to lay it back down. We've got to say, Lord, this is not mine. This is yours. And I am giving it back to you. It's what Romans 12, 1 says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Here's dedication. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, God has made it clear. All, you know, all of those animal sacrifices, you read about them in the Old Testament. Read a little bit about them in the Gospels. They're done by the end of the Gospels. But all those animal sacrifices, did you know that they never were pleasing to God? He never delighted in them. 
Look what the Bible says that God delights in. He says, for you will not, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Here's what he delights in. He delights in a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That, oh God, you will not despise. You see, all those animal sacrifices. Now look at me, because you got to get this if you're going to make sense of the Old Testament. All of those animal sacrifices. Here's what they did. They moved the worshiper. That's what worship looked like in the Old Testament. You bring your lamb to die for your sins. That's worship. And all of those animal sacrifices, all they did were were moving the worshiper to the reality that sin is something that requires something that's alive to die. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. They've got to feel the horror that you sacrifice that cow, that bull, those pigeons, that lamb. You feel the horror of killing a living being so that your sins, my sins, could be forgiven. See, all those sacrifices were meant to move you to an inward reality. I'm a sinner, and something's got to die for me to be forgiven. See, it moves the worshiper to sorrow. It's why on the 10th of Nisan, four days before the Passover, they would bring the lamb that was going to die on Passover day. They would bring it into the home and they would let it live like a pet and the fathers would carry it on their shoulders so that they could feel the horror of something that they fall in love with dying. And it moves their heart to a contrite state, which means to fall to pieces. It means to collapse under its own weight. That's what it means, an upright, contrite heart. It means your heart fell apart. And as we worship and as we dedicate and as we present ourselves to God, we do so seeing very clearly the high cost of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He had to die for us to live. So you walk through this door. And what should be on each of our minds is the cross of Christ. And he died so that you could have life. And because he died so that we could live, we lay down our lives. Not to pay him back, you never will. Out of gratitude. David went on to write in Psalm 51, Then, then you will delight God in right sacrifices. When when our hearts fall to pieces and we don't sacrifice this animal thinking that we're good enough because of it. Our hearts fall to pieces realizing that God, you're going to send your son to die for me. Then your sacrifices delight God. See, God is our master. But does God have all of us? Now, you have to answer that honestly, and I do too. Do we have humble hearts dedicated to his purposes? You know that, that old hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, written by Frances Ridley Havergal. You remember that? She wrote that hymn, and here's what the first line says. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. You want to know what biblical worship is? Listen, it means you walk into the congregational worship sanctuary with a heart that aims at dedicating everything to God. But there's a lot more. 
Biblical worship's not just dedicating. Biblical worship is celebrating our God, celebrating our God. Listen, our, our worship should be celebratory. You know, for 13 centuries, actually closer to 15, did you know that over 13 centuries, the church had lost its music? Did you know that? It wasn't until Martin Luther came on the scene that music in church revived. Before that, it was just monks chanting. It was professional choirs. The average person like you and I, we sat in the pew then, you wouldn't be singing. The church didn't sing until 1500. But Luther loved music. He once wrote, I am strongly persuaded that after theology, after preaching, there is no art that could be placed on a level with music. For besides theology, music is the only art capable of affording peace and joy of the heart. The devil flees before the sound of music almost as much as before the word of God. Do you believe that? Listen, I'm going to tell you, probably not a lot of us believe that. Because you can say you believe that, but does it translate in the way you worship? See, what you really believe comes out in the way you live. Nehemiah, he brings in verse 27, look, he brings the musicians to Jerusalem. It says to celebrate the dedication with what? Gladness, thanksgiving, and singing. Now, some of you aren't looking at your Bibles. I could be lying to you right now. Nehemiah brought the Levites to Jerusalem because he loved Tim Ackley. Right? See, I could tell you anything. Look what it says. The dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Look at verse 36. These were the instruments, the musical instruments of David. They were celebrating with music. And what marked their worship were these three elements. Gladness, thanksgiving, and singing. You know what gladness is? It's a word that means gaiety, mirth, pleasure, delight. It means you are so full of delight that it just leaks out of you. And there's times, now listen, there's times when worship is rightly serious. But you got to hear this, you ready? Every Christian and every worship service of God's people it should be full of gladness you should come in here with gladness you should walk out with more gladness it should resonate in your hearts and we celebrate and when we celebrate our minds begin recalling what God has said and what he's done for us and our hearts respond in gratitude and thankfulness and our wills surrender more and more to him. You see, a glad heart, listen, you'll know this, a glad heart is a heart full of thanksgiving. And we come together celebrating God and waking up our souls and what we read earlier at the beginning of the service, to bless the Lord and forget not all of his benefits. So here we go, let's get real. Let me ask you a question. I look at me and you gotta, you gotta think deep. You gotta be honest. How did you come to church today? How did you walk into this building today? Did you walk into this building with thanksgiving in your hearts? Did you walk through the gates of this sanctuary with, with thanksgiving in your hearts, with, with praise on your lips? 
Did you give thanks to God, blessing his name? Why? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Listen, God loves singing. In fact, Lamentations 3 says he sings over you. He's going to be singing in eternity. Can you not wait to hear what kind of a voice God has? And he loves singing. He created singing. Adam erupted in singing when he saw Eve for the first time. Singing comes out of a heart that is full of thanksgiving. And so Nehemiah calls for the singers to come to this worship celebration. So let's go on. we got a lot to learn. What is biblical worship? That's the question we're trying to answer. Well, biblical worship, listen, it's participatory. It involves the whole congregation. Look at verse 28. They sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding. The whole congregation, men, women, look at verse 43, children. They all participated in this worship celebration. Now this is pretty interesting. Nehemiah brings all of these Priests, all of these Levites, all of these sons of the singers from all of these country rural towns. Because all the priests had been divided into 24 divisions. In fact, if you look at John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, you'll see he served as a priest in the temple when the angel Gabriel came to him. All the priests were divided into 24 divisions. There were only 22 in the days of Nehemiah. They added two back in before the days of Christ. But they're all, they're all divided into 24 divisions. In the days of Christ, there was about 24,000 priests. Significantly less in the days of Nehemiah. And they all served two weeks a year, one week at a time. And when they weren't serving, listen, they went back to their towns. They went back home to their villages where they served as the village priest, the village Levite. But they all came for this celebration service. And listen, here's our, here's our lesson for all of us. If you're in Christ, if you have bent your knee to Jesus Christ and he has saved you, Peter says you're a priest. This church is a priesthood of all believers. And we all leave here. We're going to leave here in an hour, hour and a half, maybe after coffee house. We're going to leave here and we're going to go back to our towns. We're going to go back to our villages. And you're going to serve as a priest. You're going to mediate through prayer between God and hurting people. That's a bridge building priest. That's what you do. That's what I do. And you're going to bring the word of God to people through preaching and through sharing and through teaching and through encouraging and you're going to bring hurting people back to God and putting their hope back in him this is what a priest does and when people are caught in sin you're going to redirect them you're going to encourage them back to purity and back to holiness this is what a priest does and we all gather regularly just like Nehemiah calls these priests, we come back, all the divisions, back to the house of God. We'll be back here next Saturday. We'll be back here next Sunday. And we celebrate our Lord, our Savior, Jesus. You know what I do a lot in ministry? You want to know, I mean, people always say to me, you know, you only work one day a week. 
Most of those people, God has struck mute. They've never said it more than once. And I thank him for it. But you know what I do a lot as a pastor? You know what I do? Listen, Pastor Tim does it too. Pastor Matthew. Here's what we do. We go out on rescue missions. We go out on rescue missions. Half, At least it seems like half of my time is spent on pursuing Christians who drift away from Christ and drift out of the church. They go back to their towns, their villages, and they stop coming back to worship. But listen, let me tell you something. Sitting at home, watching your favorite preacher on the TV, that is no substitute to worshiping with your church family. In fact, listen, I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to say it plainly. That's a seduction of the devil. He wants you to do that. There are some people bedridden, they cannot make it to church. But for most of us, when you sit at home and you don't want fellowship, you don't want accountability, you don't want spiritual leadership over you, that is the devil whispering that into your life and you will always, always drift. It's always been a problem in God's house. It's why Hebrews 10 says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. It's always been the problem. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, church worship is participatory. It's for everyone. And we leave here, and we are priests back in our jobs, our schools, and our neighborhoods. But let's go on. There's a lot more. I'm going to hopefully get this done sometime before fall. Biblical worship requires purifying ourselves. Biblical worship requires purifying ourselves. You know, Chuck Swindoll said this. I love this. He says, holiness precedes happiness. That's pretty deep. He went on to say the first step to a happy face, a happy countenance, is a clean heart. Look what Nehemiah did, verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. You know how they did that? They They purified themselves by taking these ceremonial baths. And then they washed their clothes so that they would come before the Lord and serve God with new clothes, clothes that had been cleaned. And they fasted and they abstained from sexual relationships with their wives and they made sin offerings. All of these, and listen, you got to get this, all of these external acts, they were meant to reveal the internal pollution of sin and made them move to confession. Listen, cleaning your clothes do, do not make you, does not make you clean before God. Taking a ceremonial bath is not going to say to God, oh, okay, I don't have any more sin. That's not what it's about. It moves you to the inward reality of sin and the need for confession. See, at the time of Christ, you know, when Jesus was on the planet, the priests and the Pharisees, they were all fixated on external washings. You know what they would do? They'd come home and before they would eat, they, even when they'd get up in the morning, before they would eat breakfast or come home from the market before they'd eat dinner, a servant would take an egg and a half, that's one of their measuring cups, an egg and a half of water taken out of a purification jar. Water that was set apart in these jars for one purpose, to make you clean. And they, a servant would take, would, you would hold your hands down and a servant would pour the water at your wrists and the water would flow off your fingertips. But listen, now your 
fingers are polluted with that water that was scrubbing metaphysically that stain, that impurity. So now they would bring their hands up. Now you know what, I got that backwards. First they would bring their hands up. They'd pour it down their fingers and roll off their wrists. Then secondly, they'd pour it on their wrists and let that water, now cleaning the impure water, roll right off their fingers. Then they were clean. You know why they did that? Because they believed in the time of Jesus. They believed there was a demon named Shibta. And when you slept, he sat on your hands. And if you ate with impure hands, that demon could come in through your mouth and right down in your heart. They also believed that Gentiles were impure. And if you touched a Gentile or anything that a Gentile owned or had touched in the marketplace, then it rendered you impure. In fact, sometimes they would take their bodies and they would literally submerge them, immerse them right into this water, these jars of water. But external water cannot clean a soul. The only thing, listen, you know this, the only thing that can make any of us clean is the blood of Christ. Amen? So look at verse 30. The priests purified the people and the gates and the wall. They're going to be pure. Listen, if you're going to worship biblically, you've got to have pure hearts. So they likely had the people wash themselves, wash their clothing before the celebration event. Here's what the priests would have done. They would have taken branches of hyssop, little bunches, look like big, gigantic, leafy broccoli. Not really, I just wanted to say that. But they would dip it into bowls of blood and then they would sprinkle the gates, sprinkle the walls. And then they would take pure water set apart in the bronze laver and sprinkle the gates and sprinkle the walls and sprinkle the people. You see, as we come together, now listen, this is the point. As we come together to celebrate, to worship, there's a time that all of us, me, you, pastors, elders, attenders, all of us look into our hearts and we confess sin and we come clean before God. And let me ask you, how was your week? How was your week in terms of walking clean before God. Did you gossip this week? Did you slander this week? Were you jealous this week or envious? Did you lust this week? Were you angry and you brooded on that, became bitter this week and resentful this week? Did you lie this week or cheat this week or steal this week or covet what somebody else has this week? Listen, all of that and any of those render our hearts unclean and God wants us to ascend the hill in worship with clean hands, clean feet, with clean mouths and clean hearts. And you walk into this building, you walk into church and as you're walking here from your cars... You're beginning, to begin, you're beginning to look inward. You're beginning to say, God, you want me clean. You want me pure before you. It's always been the case that you cannot have fellowship with impure people. You want me clean. You've got to show me where I'm not. And as he shows you, you begin to confess. And you begin to give it back to God. Now listen, that's the scrubbing of your soul. Do you not wash your hands? There was an article in the paper today. 5% or less of America knows how to wash their hands before they eat. Do you wash your hands before you eat? Listen, do you wash your heart before you worship? Do you come clean before God through confession? 
And before our lips begin singing, they need to be confessing. Holiness precedes happiness. But listen, there is a progression to biblical worship. That's the next point. Biblical worship has a progression. Now hang on your seats because this is going to be interesting. There's a progression in worship, but listen, it doesn't look the same for every worshiper. Now I want you to see what Nehemiah did, verse 31. He forms two great choirs, two large, massive choirs. And he directed them to go up on the wall. The wall, now listen, you got to get this. The wall in Isaiah 61, or Isaiah 60, is called salvation. Look what God said. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. They go up on the wall of their salvation. Listen, you can't get up on that wall unless you're saved. And both choirs were to get up on that wall, the wall of their salvation. What are they going to do? Look at verse 31. They're going to give thanks. They're going to praise God. They climb up on that wall at the valley gate. And the valley gate stands for the gate of trials, the gate of difficulty. Here we go. You ready? You got the sheep gate up at the top, northeast. You go across to the west, you come to the fish gate. You go down around the corner, you get to the old gate, the gate of Yashanah. It's not on there, but you get to the gate of Ephraim next. And then it's a long 1,800 foot of wall, 1,800 feet, and it's all going downhill. That's why they call it the valley gate. It's the gate of trials. They all start there. Both choirs go up on the gate at the valley gate. We all start there. Listen, listen. We all came in here having walked in the world this week. And I don't really care how rosy your life is. You're struggling. You're battling sin. If you're a Christian, you're struggling. You're going through trials. It's how God shapes and perseveres our faith. The valley gate is the great leveler of every Christian. Every one of us have something in common. We start at the valley gate. You walk in here, you begin to worship, you're right at the valley gate. And you've got the first choir and it progresses south. There's a reason for this. It goes straight to the dung gate. The dung gates, the gate through which the trash of the city was removed. The dung gate is the gate of confession. This is the gate that a lot of us got to get to because we come in here and we've realized, wow, I had a terrible week. I am so full of impurity. I've got a lot to confess before the Lord. And you're going to start worshiping and God's going to take you south and he's going to take you to the dung gate to get it out. And throw it into the valley of Hinnom, which is always burning, and let him submerge it into his grace. And then lock the bars on that gate and turn around and don't bring him with you. And then you're going to go from the dung gate, and you're going to go, verse 37, to the fountain gate. That's the gate where he cleans you. Listen, the only thing that's keeping the Spirit of God from filling each of us is sin. And when that sin is removed, he fills us more. The sin is removed, he fills us more. The sin is removed, he fills us more. He does it at the fountain gate, but what's he filling us with? You're going to find it at the water gate. That's the word of God. He's filling you with the word of God. It's going to cleanse your heart. It's going to give you new desires. It's going to give you power to live for Christ you've never had before. 
But the other choir goes north to the gate of Ephraim, which means doubly fruitful. It's the fruitful gate. For some of us, you came to worship here and you've been walking close with the Lord this week. Things are working well for you. You're in fellowship with God and this is a season in your life where he is producing great fruit in your life. And thankfully, he moves you to the gate of Yashanah, the old gate above the valley gate. And he's establishing your life more and more on the ancient truth of the word of God. And you're serving him as his witness at the, at the, at the fish gate. And you're testifying of his faithfulness to, um, to believers and unbelievers. And you're, you're making disciples of men and women, becoming fishers of men. And you're living powerfully because you continually keep coming back to the sheep gate, the gospel, the gate of sacrifice, where the Lamb of God walked through to get to the cross. And you're stopping at the gate of the guard. It's where, listen, this is where they went. Look at your text. He walked him right through. Nehemiah's got this choir. He walks him right up to the gate of the guard. That's the gate of those who have rejected Jesus Christ. That's the gate where we've got to get to to preach the gospel. You've got to get to those people that have not yet bent their knee to Jesus. And you've got to witness and you've got to tell them about the great hope and the life that they can have. You've got to rescue. You've got to be on a rescue mission. That's the gate of the guard. But they all end. They both end verse 40. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood where? They all ended in the house of God. See, this is worship. And Nehemiah says, and I and half of the officials with me. They may have started together. They go in different directions. Some went into confession. Some went into the fountain gate, the, va- the water gate. Others went up north, right into the fruitful gate, the gate of Yashanah, right around. But they all end in the house of God because God wants us all to be dwelling in his presence. See, there's a progression in worship. So let me ask you, which direction are you going? Which direction is he taking you right now? You've got to get to the house of God. You've got to get to the dwelling place. You've got to get to his presence. But it may be in more than one direction. Then biblical worship is passionate. We've got two more. Biblical worship is passionate. Verse 43. You know, Oliver Wendell Holmes, he was a 30-year member of the U.S. Supreme Court. He once said this, and this is sobering, this is convicting he said this i might have entered the ministry of certain clergymen i knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers see worship was never meant to be a funeral yet if you go into a lot of churches that's exactly what it is there's you know there's there's few religions in fact christianity is really almost the only one that has singing, joyful singing in their worship. Did you realize that Christianity is basically the only one of all the religions? I mean, generally, religions of the world, they're grim, they're somber. Muslims, they're taught to chant. They're not, they don't sing together in joy. Hinduism, 
the worshipers, they memorize portions of their sacred writings and then they chant them and then they pray them in an ecstatic manner to their millions of gods. But Christianity is a joyful celebration. Look at verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. If you read the rest of it five times, five times, You see rejoicing and joy. What's it mean to rejoice? Listen, I'm going to tell you something so simple. Let's say you go home today and you reheat a meal. You're going to heat a meal that had previously been warmed. And let's say that you're going to remember something. It means you're going to call to mind something that's already happened. To rejoice is to rediscover the joy that God had previously given you. That's what it means to rejoice. And, and our worship servers, our worship services, they should regularly lead you and I to the rediscovery of joy. Listen, if you're not glad as a Christian, if you're not full of joy, even in the midst of difficulty, joy is not happiness. But if you're not full of gladness, if you're not full of joy, then you don't know the gift of God because his gift is joy. It's a noun. Rejoice is a verb. Joy is a noun. Rejoice is the act of God helping you to realize what he's already given you. What is biblical worship? Finally, it has a public witness. You know, our worship, friends, is a witness to the world. Verse 43, the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Sometimes it could be an awful witness. Dead churches speak of a dead God. This is what Frederick uh, Nietzsche surmised. He said, God is dead. And if you don't believe me, go to church. It's nothing but a funeral. He was an atheist. Used to be. A clergy. But our celebratory worship can be a powerful weapon. Look at chapter 4. If you go back there, if you get to um, verse 3 of chapter 4, you've got Tobiah. You've got Tobiah, one of their enemies, mocking them. Look what they're saying. What what he's saying. What are they building? If a fox goes up on that wall, he's going to break it down. That's what Tobiah was saying. Yet now, look at, they go up on the wall. Two great Choirs, hundreds, maybe thousands of people are walking around that wall. And what they're saying to their enemies who are hearing them from far away is that our God has triumphed over you. That's what you're doing when you worship. You're saying to the world, our God triumphed on the cross. And he's given me hope. And my heart is full of rejoicing. And I will be full of thanksgiving. And I will be full of singing. See, worship was a witness when about midnight Paul and Silas and Acts were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. They were listening to them and all of a sudden an earthquake and God rescued them and the jailer and his whole house were saved on that very night. Worship is a witness. And parents, it's a witness to our children as well. Women and men, or women and children, were rejoicing, verse 43. Listen, here's what, probably they were thinking of Psalm 48, which says, walk about Zion, Jerusalem, go around her, number her towers, 
Consider all of her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Parents, as you celebrate God's faithfulness in worship, as you dedicate your lives to his service, you are witnessing and telling the next generation that this is God, our God. See, God loves our joyful worship. Psalm 22 says he is holy and enthroned on the praises of Israel. Did you know that God sits on our worship and our praises? He's enthroned on them. They rise to him. He hears them. He enjoys them. He responds to them. Do you want our church to be marked by biblical worship? Do you want that? Sometimes, honestly, we're kind of dead. Honestly. That's a shame. Even if you're not comfortable, and this is a biblical exhortation, lift up your hands to God. Learn to be comfortable with it because it's simply the command of God. And even if you're not used to it, speak to your soul. And you walk in here and you say, soul, I'm either going to go south on the wall or I'm going to go north. But I'm going to end at the house of God. So let's wake up and worship. And confess freely to God. Make your heart clean before God. And whether you head straight to the dung gate or you go up to the fruitful gate, let's meet at the house of God. Let's praise our Savior who is our God forever and ever. Amen? Let's learn to, wish, to worship biblically. Let's pray.